Give me a psalm, trust and cherish, and psalm and horses, of course. This song was written at a time when um, that's what nations had to go to war. They had chariots and, and horses. But we trust in God. We don't trust in man or, or other things. We trust in the Lord. We know that he will answer. He will save his anointed those he has called. That he will answer us from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And may I love the word of God. It is so true and so encouraging to us as saints. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Your word never fails. Not one promise of your word, Lord, fails. Everything that you have ever said, everything that you have ever promised does come to pass. And those promises yet to come to pass will come to pass. Lord, we thank you, as the psalmist said, that we can trust in the name of the Lord. Lord, your name is true. Your name is is worthy. Your name is powerful. Your name saves. Lord, your name brings salvation. It is said in the book of Acts that there is no other name under heaven given unto men whereby we must be saved. Lord, your name represents your character. Your name represents who you are. Your name represents your worth. And Lord, your name is so holy that if we blaspheme your name, Lord, we bring judgment on ourselves. If we use your name in vain, Lord, that is a great sin against you. Lord, help us to honor your name, to worship your name, to glorify your name in, in how we live, in how we act, in how we talk, and how we deal with others. Lord, I ask you this morning to give us a deeper repentance. Give us a horror of sin. Lord, help us to flee from it. Help us, Lord, to resolve that our hearts shall be in you alone. Lord, give us a deeper trust in you. That we may lose ourselves to find ourselves in you. The ground of our rest. You are the spring of our being. Lord, give us a deeper knowledge of you as Savior, Master, Lord, and King. Lord, give us deeper power in private prayer, more sweetness in your word as we read it, and more steadfast grip on the truths of your word, Lord, as we read them. Lord, give us a deeper holiness in our speech, in our thoughts, in our actions. Let us not seek to be good moral people apart from you. Lord, go deep into us, deep into our hearts, that our beings may be filled with your love and your joy, that the roots of grace may take root in us far and wide. Lord, we have no master but you. We have no law but your will. We have no delight but in you. 
We have no wealth but that which you give. We have no good, Lord, but that which you bless. Lord, we have no peace but that which you give us. Lord, we are nothing but everything you have made us. Lord, we have nothing but what we receive from you. Lord, we can be nothing. We can do nothing apart from your grace. Lord, help us to see that about ourselves, that we have nothing without you, that we can't live, move, and have our being without you. Lord, help us to come to the end of ourselves because, Lord, we bring misery upon ourselves when we make ourselves out to be our only hope, make ourselves out to be our only God. What you say is that when you say, Lord, that we should have no other gods before us. So, Lord, help us to make an end of ourselves. As the Lord Jesus Christ said, if anyone comes after him, let us first deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. And Jesus says on the heels of that, what profit is it to a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For he who loves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for Christ's sake will gain it. Well, many people are seeking to love their own life instead of loving life with you. And they're actually losing their life. Lord, many people are seeking to gain the whole world at the expense of their souls. They're seeking to gain all the material wealth. They're seeking to gain all the, the praise and the acceptance of man. But they're doing it, Father, at the expense of their own souls. Lord, this world is empty. It overpromises and underdelivers. Lord, help us again. To trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Lord I pray this morning for our leaders that they trust in your name. Our president those who are in authority. Our president Congress. The cabinet. Our governor. Our state representatives. Our local mayors and city councilmen. Lord, that they may also trust in your name, even through common grace, those who are not believers. We pray, Lord, for our emergency responders, our police officers, sheriff's deputies, you know, law enforcement, those in authority, Lord, in our streets that are helping to protect us. Be with them, Father, as they help to keep our community safe and to also enforce the law. Be with them and protect them and their families. Lord, there's a serious lack of respect for authority in our, in our land. And Lord, that comes from a lack of worship of you, Lord. If we can't worship you as the ultimate authority, we're not going to worship human. I mean, we're not going to rather obey human authorities if we can't worship and serve you, Lord, as the ultimate authority. Lord, we must have a proper worship of you first in order to understand authority and how we are to be towards authority figures in our life.
Lord, help us to worship you, worship you rightly, so that we may be able to love our fellow man. Because the Lord Jesus even said himself as he affirmed what you said in your word in the Old Testament. When someone asked him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And the Lord Jesus answered. The first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all your strength. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, there's an order to that. First, we must love you. How do we love you? We, we worship you. We obey you. We bow the knee to you as Lord over our life, as Savior of our life. That is how we love you, Lord. It's not a mental goosebump type feeling, Lord. We, we, we love you by honoring you, by worshiping you, by glorifying your name and all we do. And as we love you, Lord, we will know how to love our neighbors. We will know how to treat our neighbors. We will know how to deal with them. Lord, we can't do any of that without worshiping you first. Our government, governing officials can't do that without loving you first. Lord, help us to love you, bending the knee to you, and worshiping you as the only true God. And lastly, Lord, I pray for the faithful men I was talking to this morning that are preaching, laboring in the gospel in our churches. They are the heralds of gospel truth, Lord, all of us as men. Well, my prayer this morning is that these men preach with the power that God provides by his spirit. That man's greatest need is to be forgiven of his sins. And may we point sinners to the only hope for their forgiveness and salvation and that is the God man Jesus Christ we pray for all the faithful brothers this morning including myself that we all do that faithfully brother Anthony and Bob and Carlton and brother Josh and Mark and brother James brother Steve brother Cody all the other faithful men around, Lord, that they may preach Christ, point people to the cross, provide the hope that is only found in Christ Jesus. And Lord, fill me with your spirit as I teach this morning. Lord, may you get to our hearts as we continue to see how we are to walk as believers with this new life that, that we have. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves, to see where we fall short, and to repent and follow you in everything that we do and say and how we live. Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we hear this morning. Plant your word in our hearts, Lord, that we may not sin against you. In Christ's name I pray, amen and amen. Man, let us turn to uh, Ephesians. We're in the fifth chapter. As we continue our series through Ephesians, I think this is the 27th sermon in this book. And we're talking about walking differently. 
and this is part three of that topic as we're looking at what it is to walk in the newness as believers and this morning Paul talks about walking in love and that is what we're going to look at this morning what does it mean to walk in love So we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. We're going to look at the description of Christ's love for us. So this is Ephesians 5 beginning at verse 1. And this is from the ESV translation in which I am reading. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear or beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Some translate say a sweet smelling savor. But so he gives the but here. Remember but in scripture means one of two things. Something good is going to come after like but God and then something meaning a prohibition is coming. So he tells us the positive things to walk in love, to be imitators. And now he gets to the prohibitions of this Christian life as we walk in love. So these things are the opposite of walking in love. So begin at verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper or fitting among the saints let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place or not fitting but instead let there be thanksgiving or giving of thanks for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what things? The sexual, sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. And people deceiving, uh, people saying, oh, God's not going to do anything about that. Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not be partakers with them so the big idea of this message is you know walking in love uh, produces purity of life or purity in conduct we're called as believers to keep ourselves pure as we walk in the light and as we do that we expose the deeds of darkness now, I'll say this from the beginning, as I always have to affirm. Christians struggle against sin, but do not live in sin. Okay? Christians struggle against sin, but do not live in sin. Habitually sinning, unrepentantly sinning. 
So when we're looking at these prohibitions here, Paul is saying these not to be even named among Christians. That means that this should not even be mentioned in Christian circles. Paul talked about the glorious renewal that we have as being the new man beginning back at uh, chapter 4, verse 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The Gentiles are the pagans, the unbelievers. And how do they walk? In the fertility of their minds. They're darkening their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because they have hard hearts. They become callous. They've given themselves to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is a life of an unbeliever, not the life of a believer. So the renewal that we have as believers is a call for self-sacrifice instead of self-indulgence. As believers, we're not to live to indulge ourselves in our fleshly sinful desires. We're called rather, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, to put off the old man with his deeds and to put on the new man who is renewed after Christ Jesus. So the emphasis is placed on self-sacrifice. So now he shifts it to the opposite of self-indulgence that we're going to see beginning at verse 3. So the admonition to walk in love is followed by the condemnation of the perversion of love. Verse 1 and 2 talks about walking in love. And verses 3 through 7 talks about how love can be what? Perverted. We're going to get into that. A child, think about a child. A child will show himself to be a true child by wanting to grow up like his father. In the same way, God's precious children, which comes from the Greek word uh, techna, those who are born from him, that means those who are born again, they will be eager to copy him as he enables them. True children of God want to be as we can't be like God because he's God. But true believers want to imitate God. We don't want to imitate the world. We want to reflect God to the world. That is why God uh, created us anyway. What is the chief end of man? To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. We're image bearers of God. To image means to mirror God. We're supposed to mirror and image God to the world. But a child, just like a child wants to imitate their father, we as believers, children of God, want to copy him. So, as saints of God, we are to order our behavior and manner of life after what is pleasing to God. That's how we are to order our life. And this is done through the supernatural love that is transferred to us when God saves us. That love of Christ is placed on us by the Holy Spirit. And when this love becomes the deciding factor in that the choices that we make and the motivating power of our actions, we will begin to walk in love. But we can only walk in love when that's done in us. So, looking at our principles here, 
the first two verses the first two verses tell us simply one thing to walk in love so let's look at the first two verses again Paul says therefore be imitators of God as dear or beloved children and walk in love notice the order be imitators of God and walk in love reason why that order is that so so therefore Paul is concluding the thought from Ephesians 4 where he talks about how Christians are to, uh, to relate to one another he says be imitators of God so what this is saying is that we ought to make God our example as believers we make God our example and our model we cannot content ourselves with comparing ourselves to other people. We can easily compare ourselves to other people. Oh, I'm okay, yeah, I'm better than them, or they're better than me. We can easily compare ourselves to other sinners, but that doesn't make sense because we're not each other's goal. God is our goal. We want to be like God, not to be like another man. There's nothing wrong with, you know, looking at someone's life now. If a person is following a life of godliness, yes. You can be like them. You can imitate them. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. If a person's not following Christ, then guess what? You don't follow them. Because they're not leading you to be like God. But we say being imitators of God, we look to God as our model, as our example. We must heed the idea of 1 Peter 1, verses 15 to 16. In 1 Peter, Peter is is quoting the Old Testament when he says be as he who has called you is holy he's talking to the saints who called us God he sanctified us he called us out he set us apart so 1 Peter 1 15 and 16 says as he who has called you is holy so you be holy okay in all your conduct because it is written be holy for I am holy so what does God call his people to a life of what holiness why because he himself is holy God is the standard of holiness and we are to strive every day as believers to live what kind of lives holy lives that's what it means to be imitators of God we imitate God by doing what living holy thinking holy speaking holy reacting holy Again, we're going to fall. A righteous man falls seven times, but the Lord still upholds him. The righteous don't fall and stay down. The righteous don't sin and say, well, I might as well just keep doing it. The righteous man sins and says, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to put this sin away. Lord, help me to put this sin off. Help me to resist the temptation to commit this sin. That's what the righteous man does. Those whose righteousness is in Christ. A righteous man does not want to sin. A righteous man does not want to do what is displeasing to God. Rather, a righteous man wants to do what? Imitate God. To live holy because he or she knows that that is the calling on their life. So that's what we think about when we think about being imitators. 
Paul didn't say think about God or admire God or adore God. He says rather imitate God. These are important Christian duties. Thinking about God, admiring God and adoring God. Those are very important Christian duties. But he's calling us to a practical action. Going beyond to our inner life with God, which involves imitating him. So Paul, and this is actually a continuation. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 13, this is actually a continuation of that thought. Where Paul says that we are to grow to a perfect man to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then in 432, he says that we're forgiving one another just as God in Christ also forgave us. God's behavior towards us becomes our measure of behavior towards other people. If God forgave us, guess what we do? We forgive others. That's imitating God. If you're holding a grudge, are you imitating God? God didn't hold grudge. God didn't have temper tantrums and fits like we do. If you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> We forgive. Why? Because God has forgiven us. That's how you can imitate God. You forgive. If you're holding grudges and letting a boot, uh, a, a rather root of bitterness spring up in your heart, then you're not imitating God. Forgiving, as Paul said in Ephesians 4 and 32, just as God in Christ forgave you. Now, it is more important. It is more is is important to realize that God is more than our example, because there are many errors that come in the church when people uh, apostates do this. They they present Christ as an example, like as a good teacher. You know, he said some good things. You know, he 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 fed the hungry and he he uh, ministered to the outcasts and all these things that these people say about him. We're not saved by the example of Jesus. But once we are saved, his example is meaningful to us. God is more than our example. But he is also our example. But most of all, God is our Lord and he is our Savior. He's the Savior of our life and he is the Lord of our life. He's not only an example. So he says, imitate God how? As dear children. And children, if you look at children, children are natural imitators. You can watch a, a child imitate their parents and it looks so cute and so funny. I remember when, uh, uh, I think RJ and Channel, they, they, were, well, they were little. And they were walking around in, in my wife's heels. It was so funny. Walking up, up and down the hallway. It was so, and we took a little video of it, uh, of them. They were imitating their mom. And then they would put their feet in my shoes and walk around the house, you know, shoes all flopping off and everything. Why? Because they're imitating their parents. Children are natural imitators. They often do. Now, this is the thing about imitating. Children do what they see their parents or other adults do. That could be both what? Good and bad. You see a little, little two-year-old kid using profanity. Oh, we laugh at it like it's cute. It's not cute. That means that their parents are doing it or they're around their crazy uncle or or they're, they're, they're places they're not supposed to be listening to 
adults use profanity. And then they slip out and say, and the parents get mad. Like, well, you don't want to bring them around that. You, you want to got them watching movies or whatever that have it in. Guess what children are going to do? They're going to imitate it. That's how they learn. Amen. They're imitators. What are they imitating as dear children? Children act according to their nature as children. They're sinners. And unless they're corrected by their parents, they're going to act like sinners because they're sinners. They sin because they're sinners. Children are going to imitate their parents. Now, when we act according to our nature as children of God, guess what? We will imitate him. We see what our father does and we do the same thing. Our Heavenly Father, those of us who are in Christ. Charles Spurgeon said that this is so good. <laughs> he said, as we do imitate God, we become representatives of God, especially before those who have shut God out of their life. What are we sent into this world for? Is it not that we may keep men in mind of God, whom they are most anxious to forget? If we are imitators of God as dear children, they will be compelled to recollect that there is a God, for they will see his character reflected in ours. I have heard of an atheist who said he could get over every argument except the example of his godly mother. He could never answer that. And that's something. This is from Spurgeon. An atheist said he could get over every argument except the example of his godly mother. How powerful it is for us as Christians in the workplace to live a godly life. We may be the only picture of God that people see. We have to always remember that as we go to work. Again, we're not going to be perfect. This is not what this is calling for. When we're imitating God, again, we are going to fall. But it's how we fall that matters. If you fall, if you sin in front of your coworkers and you show humility, you confess that sin, you show them that you're not perfect, that you don't have it all together. Forgive me for saying that word to you or to this other person. Forgive me for talking to you like that. I was... I was upset. Forgive me. I was wrong. I dishonored God. If you show that type of gospel humility to them. It can have an effect on people. But if you're a pretender. What are they going to call you? A hypocrite. That's not a good example. That's not a godly example. So as believers. Those of us in the workspace. Those of us with our family members. We can be the best imitation of God. That people see. And that's what Spurgeon was saying about this atheist. He could not argue against his mom's godly example. That brings great conviction on him because he knows. But he couldn't argue with his godly mother. And that should be the way with us. Amen. So as we imitate God's dear children, what are we to do? Walk in what? Love. As Christ also has loved us. As in all things, Jesus is our example. As he has loved us and has given himself for us, we are to display the same kind of self-giving love. 
We display the love with which Christ loved us. So he says, walk in love. Now, what is love? You know, the world says love is love. <laughs> That's what the world says. The world says anybody can love anybody. And we're going to look at the perversions of this love in, in the next uh, section. In fact, I'm, 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 I'm going to get to that. Me, I want to jump ahead of myself. Anyway, he says, now that we imitate God, we do what? We walk in love. We walk in a loving way. We walk in a way that looks out for the other. Now, what is love? Again, love is, is self-sacrificial. Biblically, love can be defined. 1 Corinthians 13 gives a good example. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. This is a good example of biblical love. And the thing about this chapter, a lot of people read it. But this chapter, is, this chapter is actually speaking of Christ. This is not something, you know, a lot of motivational speak. A lot of unbelievers use this passage. This is not the true only definition of love, rather. But this is how gospel love can look. Look at verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Does not boast. It is not arrogant. It's not self-serving. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not selfish and self-centered. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at what? Rejoice, it, it, is not, it is not rejoice at what? What does it say in your Bible? Evil or wrongdoing? But it rejoices in what? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with what? The truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, the world uses, the, uses these verses too. But they're using it in the wrong context and the wrong meaning. These aspects of love are about Christ. That's what it's about. Now, when people say love is love, what they're saying is people should be free to love whoever they want. Love has no limits. There's no limit to who you can love. A man can love a man. A woman can love a woman. That's true. I love my brother. I love Brother Daryl. But they're talking about a perverted love. God defines what love is. God defines the boundaries of love. Not man. Not the government. So when we walk in love, we're walking 
love in, in, in essence means you're looking out for the best interest of another, the object of your love. Who showed that greatest example? Christ did, because Paul says it here. Walk in love as Christ has loved us. And how did he love us? He gave himself up for us. That's what love does. It, it, it gives up itself for someone else. Christ loved us by doing what? Giving up himself for us. As a what? Offering and a sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice that was pleasing to the Father. And we can offer a pleasing sacrifice as we give ourselves in love to others. To be like Christ, to walk in love. We could lay down our life little by little in small ways. For the good of others. That's how true love looks. Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice. He gave up his life for us as an offering. And that is how love looks. And that is, is what we do as we are believers, as we walk in love. An offering made unto the Lord. A sacrifice. Sacrifice uh, goes back to the Old Testament, which was a sin offering. Or a victim for sin. So Christ gave himself as an offering and as a sin sacrifice for our sins. That's, that's how he showed his love. Remember, he became our atonement. Christ was the atonement of our sins. He gave himself up. No one took Christ's life. Christ gave his life. He gave himself up. He went willingly to the cross. He wasn't dragged kicking and screaming to the cross. No, Christ willingly went to the cross as an offering and as a sacrifice for our sins. That is love. Christ Jesus himself even said, greater love has no man than this. And he gives up his, his life for a friend. And that's what he did. He gave up his life. He demonstrated that love and that's how we are to walk in love we walk in a loving way but what has the world done what what have the gentiles done they have perverted love and that's what we see in this next section right here looking at verse three and four this is a contrast to walking in love this is a contrast into looking out for the betterment of your neighbor or pursuing the good of your neighbor this is the difference. This is how perversion looks. And pervert basically means to make unclean, to taint. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting or harsh jokes, dirty jokes. Which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. 
So Paul here lists a comprehensive list of, of uh, sexual sins. He says, as opposed to walking in love, committing these sins is not walking in love. At all. The first one up is fornication. Fornication in this basic sense is, is sex outside of marriage. That's, that's the basic sense of, uh, basic meaning of what fornication is. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a mandate to be what? Fruitful and multiply. When he said, this is, this is, how, this is how it works. God gave Adam a suitable helper, Eve. And the first marriage ceremony took place in Genesis. Turn to Genesis. Let's turn to the beginning of it all. And then Jesus affirms this in Mark, uh, in um, Matthew 19. But let's look at Genesis 1. Let's go back to the very first book of the Bible. If you want to understand the world, read Genesis 1 through 11. That gives everything. Genesis 2, rather. This is the first marriage ceremony that took place. Who defines marriage? God. Who defines the marriage bed? God does. So, look at Genesis 2, beginning at verse 23. This is where it all begins. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And this is what Adam said. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother <clears throat> and clean to his wife. And they shall become Two or one. One flesh. That's the consummation of the marriage. That's the sexual union. That's, that's what that means. Anytime a husband and wife comes together, that's cons the consummation of their marriage every time it happens. You're affirming that one flesh union. So he says, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, God ordained marriage. He said, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and two shall become one flesh that's the consummation of their marriage turn to Matthew 19 Jesus himself affirms this is teaching about divorce 
Matthew 19, you know, the, the Pharisees are always trying to trick Jesus. Look at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him, tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them what? Male and female. How many genders are there? That was kind of weak. How many genders are there? He created them what? Male and female. Who created the male and female? God did. Jesus said, have you not heard in the beginning, in the book of Genesis? Continuing. And said, therefore a man shall leave his what? Father and mother, husband, wife, male, female, mom, dad, mother, father, binary. He should leave his what? Mother, father, mother, and do what? Hold fast or cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer what? Two but one. So why am I saying all this? When you're looking back at the passage at the sin of fornication. When you're committed fornication, you're trying to do something that is only designed for marriage. You're trying to be one flesh when you're not one flesh. Because you're doing it outside of the bounds of what? The marriage bed. Hebrews 13 and 4 says that marriage is honorable but the bed is undefiled but fornicators and adulterers will be judged why because the marriage bed is meant for sexual union so people who claim to be Christian and are living together are living in rebellion against God and they're committing the sin of fornication and if they're habitually doing it because they're staying together then they're not because a believer would not live in unrepentant sin because Paul says what this shouldn't even be named among you fornication sexual morality that's where it comes from the Greek word pornea which means all types of sexual perversion not just fornication pornography bestiality homosexuality lesbianism all of those acts fall under fornication or sexual immorality and Paul is saying what when we when we walk in love we don't do that if we're doing that we're not what walking in love we're walking in perversion of love because the world says again love is love you can love whoever you want well what if I want to marry my mother I'll See, you know, we talked about this in our worldview uh, training, right? You have to follow these worldviews to their conclusion. If you think love is love, then I should be able to marry my mother. I should be able to marry my dog. We say, ugh, but you got people going around saying that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man and that men can get pregnant and that children should be put on puberty blockers and be chemically castrated and messed up for the rest of their life causing irreversible damage to them. Ten years ago, we would have shuddered if someone said that. No, like, man, you crazy. They ain't going to do that. Don't think, Pete, let me tell you all about sin. You have to know the nature of sin. Sin never relents. Now, God does restrain sin, but God will give people over. We read about this in uh, the fourth chapter. 
Romans 1 talks about it. God will give people over to those perversions. You have people who do want to marry their animals. You have people who are now trying to justify pedophilia. That's going to be next. That's what that plus is for. They're calling them minor attracted people, maps. That's why it's LGBTQIA2S plus. Because plus means everything else. After a while, give it five, ten years, pedophilia is going to be normalized. You have to understand the nature of sin, the nature of man, the depraved hearts of men who've been given over to their uh, sinful desires. Just think, people. Ten years ago, we didn't have this craziness. Five years ago, we didn't. Think about it. That wasn't that long ago. That's when we, we started our church 13 years ago. Nobody was talking about uh, giving children puberty blockers. And chopping off, uh, giving, chopping off girls, you know, breasts and, and chemically castrating boys. Nobody was talking about that 13 years ago when we started over there on 701 Wilmer Avenue. That wasn't even thought of. Look at where we are now. We got schools teaching it to children. Trans, so-called transitioning children without the parents' permissions. Don't think that it won't happen. I didn't think this was going to happen. I'm only 51 years old. I never thought I would see this in my lifetime. And let me tell you this. All this is what we're talking about. The perversion of love. That's what we're seeing in our culture. The world doesn't define love. God does. The world doesn't define marriage. The government doesn't define marriage. God defines marriage. Marriage is pre-political. It is, it is pre-civilizational. It is God who created marriage. It is God who demonstrated love. It is God who defines love, not man. And what does Satan do? Satan, Satan can't create anything. Satan is a created being himself. I said this a couple weeks ago. Satan himself is a created being. He can't make anything. He can only pervert what God has said is good. He can tempt. He can tempt you to do what God has forbidden. He can't make anything. But when we see all this perversion of love, all this fornication, all, all this sin, sexual sin, this is not to be named among Christians. That's what Paul is saying. What else can't be named among Christians? Uncleanness. Dirty moral behavior. Christians can't be characterized as immoral people. 
dirty people, living unclean lives, living unkempt lives. In our personal moral lives, in how we carry ourselves and how we live, how we appear. I mean, we have to put on airs out in public, but the point is we should live like we're children of the king. We should look like it. We should carry ourselves like it. We can't live in uncleanness and filthiness, which is the, the, the same idea as, as Christians should not be described as being unclean and filthy. When someone comes and visits my house, they shouldn't have to be tripping over trash just to get through. Man, pastor's, pastor's filthy. I mean, my house doesn't look like that. I'm just, <laughs> you know, my point is, our lives should not be characterized by filthiness because that characterizes slothfulness and not taking good stewardship in what God has given us. Those things should not even be named among. We shouldn't have filthy mouths, filthy thoughts. Why? Coarse jesting, same thing. Inappropriate, impure sexual humor, telling dirty jokes. Amen. Those things shouldn't, we, we shouldn't. Christians should not be characterized. Saints should not be characterized. Those of us who are putting on a new man, we should not be characterized by telling dirty jokes. Nothing funny about it. They're dirty. As Christian, now, if I'm a Christian, does, guess what? They're walking like the what? Gentiles in the futility of their minds. That's how they talk. Because their lives are empty, they're without hope. They don't see anything wrong with it. Why? Because they're unbelievers. They don't have the Spirit of God in them to convict them. So, unbeliever does it, they're an unbeliever. Believers shouldn't go around telling filthy jokes, coarse jesting. Paul says this is not what? Fitting. This is not fitting. It's not convenient for the saints to carry themselves that way. I should not look at a Christian man and say, man, he know he can tell some dirty jokes. Tell you what, they won't be around me. But that is not, Paul says, as is not what? Fitting. Convenient. It's not fitting for the Christian. That's not loving. Telling dirty jokes is not walking in love. Being unclean and filthy is not walking in love. Committing uh, sexual morality is not walking in love. It's inappropriate. It's things that are not fitting Charles Spurgeon says things that are not fitting is what we call inappropriateness he says these are good verses to help us address those awkward moments when we choose not to go along with the crowd and laugh at the dirty jokes and innuendos he also says that this is a good point we must notice the theme of the moral appeal. It is not avoid these things so that you can be a saint, but rather it is you are a saint 
now live in a matter fitting for a saint. We live this way because we're saints. You know what? I'll tell my wife last night, we're not in the cool kids club. We, we don't get invited to all the, the wine tasting parties and stuff that our people that we know have because we don't drink wine. It's not a sin to drink uh, alcohol. Bible you know, tells us not to be drunk. I choose not to drink, period. Alcohol is nasty anyway. Uh, but anyway, we don't, we don't drink wine. You know, we have friends that have, they, you know, they go to this place over here on 7th Street, uh, the Lush Garden. Uh, one of my wife's counselor friends owns it, and, you know, they have all these wine-tasting things and all that. And I told my wife last night, I said, we're not part of the cool kids club. You know, we don't get invited to the wine parties and different things like that. You know, we're not, we're not in that sophisticated crowd. I just like some good sweet tea. You know, I'm not part of that crowd. But uh, you know what? I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. But some Christians, they put themselves under pressure, say, man, we got we to gotta belong with these people. But as a saint of God, my conscience convicts me on those things so I don't violate my conscience because it's a sin not to do that. But the appeal that Paul is making here is to live in a matter fitting for a saint. Again, it's not going to be perfect. But these things should not be named among us as saints. Remember, this letter's written to the saints. Read the first verse of this whole letter. And he talked about chapter 4, putting on the new man. What does it mean to put on the new man? <laughs> the culture of Paul's day was given over to sexual morality. That's why he said... The saints are not to live this way. These Christians in this pagan culture, they, Paul wanted them to stand out as saints. Because this behavior that he's talking about, all this fornication, all this uncleanness, all this coarse jesting, this was part of the day of the culture in which Paul lived when he was writing his letter to those saints. And guess what? It's part of our day too. I, th I was telling my youngest son uh, up there, in school in Huntsville I told him I said when I was in college I was a young believer and man I just had to leave certain situations sometimes I didn't care what people thought about me when I saw people acting certain ways I said I left I mean I didn't have a car I walked or I called a cab or had one of my friends take me home you know drop me off at my dorm and, 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 and go back order I said I just left those situations I don't want to be in certain situations as a as a as a young Christian, I just didn't want to be in those type of situations. And I said, told him that you have to have the courage to to be able to do that and not give in to the pressure. So we're thinking about our speech. Does our speech reflect uh, the body of Christ? Does our speech reflect what is fitting for saints? Does our thinking reflect that God sees our thoughts? No one else does. But God says our thoughts. Does our thinking reflect what is fitting for saints? This is the goal. We are created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And in glorifying God, we live as what? Saints. As those who have been called out from this world. We're not to live like the world. 
The problem with a lot of churches today is they're trying to be like the world to attract the world. But what you draw them with is what you draw them to. You're trying to draw the world by being like the world. You're just drawing them to the world. You can't come in and do what they call bait and switch. You bring them in and then all of a sudden you want to start preaching the gospel. No, because that's not what they came for. They came for the worldliness that you attracted them with. And when they don't get it, guess what they're going to do? They're going to leave. We are called to be different from the world. And then he continues, not only those three, but he says here again about covetousness. He says, these things are out of place, but instead let there be what? Thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Let there be giving of thanks. So instead of having this filthy speech, let there be rather what? Giving of thanks. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So instead of being involved in immorality or filthy speaking, our mouths should be involved in the giving of thanks why because thanksgiving is an act of unselfishness the selfish and unloving person guess what they don't give thanks they're always concerned about who themselves they, they, they think that they deserve whatever good that they receive that's the way the mind is that doesn't walk in love the unselfish and unloving person on the other hand focuses their life on the concerns and needs of others and for that they are thankful. Whatever good thing they receive from God or whatever good thing they receive from other people they do what? They express gratitude. They don't act as if they deserved it. The person who feels they deserved it they're selfish. They're unloving. The person who knows that they don't deserve what they get from God guess what? They're thankful. They're thankful. That is the Christian mind. He says, but rather giving of thanks. Use your mouth to give thanks instead of speaking dirty words and speaking filthy words. Use your life as a life of gratitude instead of living a life of sexual immorality and perversion and filthiness and uncleanness. Instead, be thankful. Give thanks. Instead of using others, serve them. Instead of trying to turn innocent people into immoral people, you seek to change the immoral person into a righteous person. The person who's selfish, they want to turn people who are innocent into immoral people. They want them to participate in their immorality with them. But the person who is thankful they want to change the immoral person into someone who is righteous in Christ. That's the big difference there. So he's saying, rather, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be certain of this. In other words, he's saying, make no mistake about it. Your fornicator. And these are people who practice these. 
no unclean person, no covetous man who is an adulterer has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, Christian. So Paul is saying what? Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake. Don't be deceived. Don't let people tell you, oh, you can get away with it. Live it up. Go on and live life. Live your life. You only live once. That's what the world says, right? Live it up. Girl, go out there and just, just live it. Live it up. Live, laugh, love. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, that's what the world says. Just live it up. And when the world says live it up, they're talking about living it up in sin. Yeah, go on, sleep around with whoever you want to. Live it up. Men, so your royal oats. Go on out there, man. Just, you know, you, you'll, you'll settle down in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s when you're old and lonely. Ladies, go on out there and just sleep around, have fun, be be sexually liberated. Just don't, don't, don't be in this marriage, you know, all strict and can't do this and can't do that. And yeah, uh, go on, free yourself. Get a divorce. Do you know they have divorce parties? Yes, it's a thing. Yes, it's a thing. It's been a thing for a while. Women have divorce parties. They're celebrating breaking up their marriage and messing up their children. They're having divorce parties. You're celebrating the breakup of your marital covenant that you made with your husband before God. You're breaking up your one flesh union and you go out and have a party with the girls and have drinks, margaritas, you know, drinks with the little things sticking out of them. Go have some margaritas with the girls at a bar and woo! I'm celebrating my divorce. Just as miserable as they want to be. Let me tell you something. Alcohol is not going to take, take away that misery. Having fun with the girls is not going to take away that misery. Having a girls night out, having a boys night out, is not going to take away that misery. It's not going to take it away. Make no mistake about it. There's no confusion on this issue. We know with certainty. We must guard ourselves against deception. Let, let no one deceive you with empty words, as Paul says. There are many people who make a living calling evil good and good evil. But Paul says what? Make no mistake about it. No fornicator, no sexual immoral person, no unclean person, no covetous man. covetous man is an idolater thou shalt not cover is the tenth commandment what does it mean to cover again it means to desire what's not yours to desire what someone else has to have an idolatrous desire for things because idolatry happens in more subtle and more powerful ways than simply bound down to a statue. That's the first thing that people think about when they think about idolatry is bound down to a statue or something like that. But no. A person who is covetous, always desiring, always having sinful desires for things. That's covetousness. 
I use the illustration all the time about babies. Babies covet. Take them into the store in the section with the blue, the yellow, and the red colors. And then that Walmart basket. And things start lighting up. And they start saying, Mommy, give me. Sit back down. Ah! And they start yelling real loud. You can hear them all the way through the store. Okay, take it. They get home, play with it for five minutes, and don't play with it again. Why? Because they're vipers in a diaper. <laughs> they're sinners. And because they're sinners, they're going to sin. Why? That's covetousness. You desire that, but you don't really need it. You don't really want it. You think it's going to satisfy you. Even those toys. I was talking to a young lady on the phone doing some life insurance with her at, at work. And, and she was um, working from home. And some little baby, I said, you know, I heard a little toy in the background. And I said, how many toys did you buy at his first birthday party? She said about 10. I said, how many of them, many of them is he still playing with? She's like, none of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's covetousness. That's the way it is. It doesn't satisfy. But that's what idolatry does to us. Idolatry makes us think that this thing is going to satisfy us. And we keep living with the what? Empty feeling. It's very empty. That's idolatry. So Paul says, anyone who is an idolater, they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those who live habitually in those ways, who habitually fornicate, who are habitually unclean, who are habitually covetous and living in those sins they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God that's why I said a Christian cannot live in sin a Christian won't live in sin because the spirit of God in him or her won't lead them to that lifestyle they can't inherit the kingdom and Paul says let no one deceive you with them empty words. We can't allow empty words to excuse or minimize the judgment due to the practice of those sins. Because because we can try to rationalize them. We say, oh, I, I'll stop one day. How do you know? Did you know you were, you were going to even start? No. What makes you think you're going to start one day? That's why he tells us back in chapter four, put off the old man. It's a constant thing we have to do. We have to constantly put out the old man with his deeds. He says, because of these things, what things? Those sins. Because of living in habitual fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This passage shows that hell is not for banishing sinful deeds. But hell is more for punishing sinful people. Those who are unrepentant in their sins. Those who refuse to repent. The wrath of God comes upon them. We hear people say all the time God hates the sin of 
but love the sinner. We need to rethink that because the emphasis is on the wrong thing. You have to have a balanced perspective from God's view. God actually loved the sinner because he sent Jesus Christ into the world to save that sinner. God's judgment is an act of love, not an act of hate. We think it's an act of hate that God sends someone. How could a loving God send someone to hell? Well, let's use a human example. How can a loving judge let a murderer free? Is that loving? That's hateful. Because this person committed a what? Crime. You love them so much that you... Paul talk, I mean, uh, the writing Hebrews talks about this. You chasing those whom you what? Love. God chasing those whom he love. A parent loves their child by doing what? Chastening them. By not letting them get away and do everything they want to do and live how they want to live under your roof. Is that love? That's hate. Because you're setting that child up to live a life where they're going to always rebel against authority. Why? Because they couldn't respect authority in their own house. So you actually hate your child if you don't correct them. You don't love them. Judgment is an act of love. That's why I said the world perverts love. The world thinks love is do whatever you want to do. No consequences. No no boundaries. God so loved the world that he gave. The sinner has the chance to repent and turn to Christ and be saved. If they don't, they're going to see the loving justice of God meted out on them. We've, we've allowed the world to condition us that judgment and justice is somehow unloving. We got nip on the world. That's why they want to let people out of jail. That's why they want to abolish law enforcement. Because they hate people. That's why they want mothers to kill their children in the womb. Because they hate babies. The world has perverted what love means. And we as Christians must reclaim that. So all that to say here. Those who practice these things. They're going to experience the wrath of God. Because they've been disobedient to him. But Paul says lastly therefore. Do not be partakers with them. So what Paul assumes here. Is that Christians would not have their lives habitually marked by fornication, uncleanness, or covetousness. And we shouldn't even be occasionally partakers of those who are. <clears throat> My wife and I won't go out to dinner with a couple who's living together but not married. Because I'm partaking in their sin. I won't go to dinner with someone who's abusing their child. I'd rather report them to authorities, but I won't go out with them somewhere and be a party with them. 
someone who's greedy and, and always scheming people, I won't have anything to do with those kind of people. You don't even partake in their sins or partake with them or even approve of them. We're going to see this later on in this chapter. We don't even approve of those things. So as we close here, Paul is laying out for us, and he's going to continue to do it through the rest of this book, how saints are to be, how we're to govern ourselves as we live in this world. As we put off the old man and put on the new man. As we live lives in this world. That our lives are to be markedly different from the lives of those who don't know God. And, the, and for those who are not in Christ. You have the opportunity to give your life to Christ. So that you can inherit the kingdom of God. That you won't be counted among the sons of disobedience that you would rather be counted among those who are blessed and the beloved and you want to experience the wrath of God on that day but you will experience the joy of entering into his kingdom where he will say to you well done good and faithful servant amen let us pray Lord, a preacher once said that soft words make a hard heart, but hard words make a soft heart. Lord, my prayer this morning is that you use your word to get to our hearts. Lord, convict us in areas of sin where we have failed. Help us, Lord, to continually put on a new man and put out the old man to continually walk after Christ to continually be imitators of God as their children and Lord I pray for those who don't yet know you that Lord you use your word to convict them of their sins to convince them of their need for a savior and Lord give them saving faith in you so that they may believe in your name. Father, thank you for your word. May you use it to encourage the faithful and to convict sinners, leading them to salvation. In Christ's name, amen.